Well, it's very good to see you. Let's see, we have, uh, I won't call them old timers, but uh, return retreatants. We have some new retreatants this year, and I'm very happy to see you here for the first time. Uh, for those of you who don't know him, Father William Jenkins, I think most of you probably are aware of that. And uh, I'm taking over for Father Greenwell. We'll be uh, traveling tomorrow. He'll be leaving tomorrow morning for the weekend mission travel. So we had to arrange it this, this, week, this retreat so that I would finish the retreat for him. We'll have Mass at 5 o'clock this evening and then also at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. And uh, uh, who is the gentleman who is arranging uh, to play the recordings for dinner? Okay, thanks. For the meals? Thank you. Excellent. Yes, please, if you would continue. Thank you. I appreciate that service very much. And uh, a number of other services, I'm sure, that are being performed, too. Now, uh, Father Greenwald's conferences generally tend to be um, serious, but on the lighter side, in the sense that they tend to be very uh, encouraging, and uh, I don't want to change that. I want to stay on that track. However, however, uh, it is a fact that the retreats that were designed by St. Ignatius Loyola, the so-called Loyola uh, Ignatian retreats, begin with a consideration of what is probably the most dour and grim fact of our faith, and that is the fact of, of hell. And it is good for us to ponder that reality especially as we go into uh, the times as they are looming ahead here, to ponder that reality for what it really is. It's very salutary. Um, these days we talk about what is called tough love, and certainly God is the, the author of tough love. We find that, that love and the toughness of that divine love expressed in so many ways. We find it in terms of God's wrath. In terms of God's wrath, though, we also find his mercy. We find that on the cross, his wrath and his mercy brought together in a remarkable way. And so it is the bedrock teaching of our faith that uh, God is just perfectly, infinitely just, and God is perfectly, infinitely merciful at the same time. In our small, created minds, very finite, we can't reconcile the two very easily. But in fact, all of this takes us back to Calvary. It all must be resolved there on Calvary. And there we will find all the answers there are and all the answers that we need. Now we see the matter of God's punishment is very important. You see, without it, without it considering the punishment of God and the wrath of God, we cannot begin to understand what, happen, what happened on Calvary. We can't begin to imagine, or beyond imagination even, uh, understanding intellectually, can't explain to ourselves even intellectually, the very concept of the Incarnation, the very concept of the cross, why would God become man? Why would he live and die as he did? Were it not for some very fundamental realities that you and I need to know, that you and I need to face. Otherwise, these mysteries of the incarnation and the crucifixion and the redemption will remain forever unknown and unknowable, incomprehensible, and in a way, even senseless people who can't come to grips with the idea of God's punishment often lose their faith because nothing else makes any sense at all except in terms of God's justice and God's mercy. <coughs> so you might say this conference is on the wrath of God. It's true, but it is so much more than that. God's punishment is temporal. God's punishment is everlasting. We don't say eternal. We cannot say God's punishment is eternal because eternity 
it has no beginning and no end. And uh, God's punishment of creatures, therefore, must never be eternal because, after all, all creatures have a beginning, even those who have no end, such as you and I, because their souls are what they call spiritual, simple substances that cannot, like our bodies, disintegrate. And so the body disintegrates uh, through death, and the soul continues and continues and continues. And so it always will. So God's punishment does strike us here on this earth. God's punishment also strikes us after we leave this earth in, in the afterlife, as we call it. Now, in light of current events in the world and current events afflicting our own country right now, it would seem that crimes today have no consequences. That crime does, in fact, seem to pay today because of the powers that be, not in heaven, but in Washington, because of the powers that be in the netherworld. Um, it seems today that virtue is punished and vice is rewarded. And that offends God. It also offends us. We are offended by that idea. It really bothers us to see people getting away with murder. Now, if we, who have such a meager idea of justice, if we have such a distorted and selfish idea of justice, if we are offended to see the injustices of the day rewarded, but what must God think of these things? How must God see these things that we see happening before our very eyes? Because after all, we may feel threatened by these things. We may even feel targeted by these things. But ultimately, it is the sacred heart of our Lord that is the target of all these things. All of these crimes are crimes against him. They are sins against him. And after all, you and I might have to suffer them, we might have to suffer with the anxiety they cause. We might even have to suffer some reversals that they cause in fortune here on earth. But he, but he had to die for them. But he had to die for these things. And so how, we might ask ourselves, how does our Lord see these things? If you and I are offended in our own petty way, how must he be offended? The leader of the Black Lives Matter movement in New York a certain Hawk Newsom, chairman of BLM, Black Lives Matter of Greater New York, just said a couple of days ago, we will burn the system down if we don't give, the United States won't give us what we want. We will burn the system down if the U.S. won't give us what we want, he said. He says, if this country doesn't give us what we want, then we will burn down the system and replace it. Then he goes on. This is in a uh, national TV interview, by the way. He says this. I could be speaking figuratively, he says, but I could be speaking literally. It's a matter of interpretation, so he's being very coy. But we know from history, especially the history of this group, exactly what he means by it. Right? Then he says, I don't condone, nor do I condemn rioting. Okay. Double talk, double talk, that's all it is, sir. It's insulting, insulting to our intelligence, but it's especially insulting to God. And when we hear these words, they can make our blood boil because they're just so wrong. And we wonder how we can get along away with saying these things and sending out this call just as this Sean King recently called for the destruction of all white depictions of Jesus Christ as expressions of white supremacy. You wonder how they can get away with this legally. But we have to always remember that these souls were created and redeemed by our Lord also. And so we cannot fall into the trap 
of thinking about them the way they think about us. We cannot fall into it. It is a trap. It's exactly what Satan wants, because he wants us to think about them the same way they think about us. And we're not allowed to. Our Lord explicitly forbids it. And so we don't want them to be condemned. Sacred Scripture says that God wants not the death of the sinner, but that he can be converted and live. And that's what you and I have to want, too. We have to unite our minds, our hearts, our souls with our Lord Jesus Christ in his prayer upon the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So we really have to pray for that. And as the members of our law enforcement personnel stand on the front lines there to hold back the tide of rioters, I know there are some traditional Catholic police, sheriff's deputies, who are actually standing there taking a torrent of abuse and praying for the very rioters who are screaming obscenities in their faces. I know they're praying for them. And that is what is needed. That's exactly what is needed right now. Now, in all of this, we realize uh, that what we're facing here on earth is an expression of hell. It is, it is an expression of hell. It's like an eruption of hell here on earth. And we might be tempted because of our times of comfort and security to think that something has gone terribly wrong. And it has. What has gone terribly wrong, though, happened a long time ago. It happened in a garden. It happened between a husband and a wife named Adam and Eve, original sin. That's what happened terribly wrong. We can't think that the rules have been changed because our fortunes have been reversed. Quite the contrary. We must see this as a part of that continuing and endless battle. And so it's important for us to understand what this means. And we can only understand it, again, in terms of hell. Now, you know that hell is a place of everlasting punishment for those who have finally and definitively rejected God's love. Hell is a place of everlasting punishment for those who have finally and definitively rejected God's love. And so they end their lives here on earth. They die in the state of mortal sin. The punishment of hell is physical torment and spiritual torment. You and I are creatures of God, human beings, composed of body and soul. Composed means literally put together. And uh, death happens when that composition comes apart, as it were. When soul and body separate, we still have to deal, though, with our human nature of soul and body. That is why the resurrection must occur. It must happen. There must be a resurrection because we have to be reconstituted. We should be thankful to God there is such a thing as death and resurrection because by the grace of God, the soul can be, in a sense, recreated in grace. But the body itself, an essential component of you and me, that body also needs to be recreated. And in order for it to be recreated, it has to be disintegrated. And then it has to be refashioned again. So the body and the soul both have to be, in a sense, recreated by God. And uh, death actually makes that possible in a, in a rather particular way. So that the body will join the soul in the joys of heaven. And so we shall be, even as our Blessed Mother is, even as our Lord is, body and soul in the joys of heaven. But the body and the soul together also will suffer the punishment of hell. So we have in hell the pain of the senses, that which afflicts the body, and the pain of loss, 
which afflicts the soul. What testimony do we have about this? What testimony do we have to tell us that this is real? That this is not only real, but it is happening right now. That there is a hell at this moment, and that there are souls there. There are fallen angels there. In fact, Scripture tells us that hell was created for Satan, fallen from Lucifer, and those who followed him. It was created for them, for those who would reject God's love. Well, we have the testimony of our Lord himself in the Gospels. And that's very, very powerful, of course, needless to say. We have the testimony of the Council of Trent and all of the catechisms of the church, all of them speak of hell. We have the testimony of the saints, some of whom have mystically visited hell. And I want to read to you from their accounts because they, again, make it more than simply a, an abstract statement of doctrine. They make it something very, very real, uh, almost tangible. You can, through their eyes, see, through their noses, smell, and through their ears, hear the sights and the smells, the odors and the sounds of hell. Sometimes even the exorcists and performing exorcisms uh, can actually get a glimpse or at least a glimmer of the sounds of hell. There's a part in the exorcism where it seems that the devil tries to overwhelm an exorcist with the sound of hell. And even the stench of hell. Just to try to discourage the exorcist. Little does he know that that's why the exorcist is there exercising, precisely because of these things. The devil isn't going to isn't going to deter the exorcist. In any case, with regard to the Gospels, what does our Lord say to us? Well, in St. Mark chapter 9, verse 43, he says, if your hand causes you to sin, if your hand scandalizes you, because that's what scandal means, it means lead another into sin. If your hand leads you into sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed than with two hands to go into Gehenna, to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. So our Lord speaks of this. He speaks of this unending fire. St. Mark tells us about that. And uh, our Lord tells us it would be better for us to go to heaven with one hand, although we don't... We aren't risen from the dead necessarily, maimed, as they say, because, uh, again, God has to reconstitute the body in a beautiful way for those in heaven. But that loss of that hand seems to us so definitive. But if we take both hands with us to hell, and those hands are then filled with suffering and agonizingly painful. What good is that hand going to do us there? Just more to punishment. Now, Gehenna was a Greek term for a, a valley which was southwest of Jerusalem. It was a place where pagan sacrifices were offered. Actually, pagan sacrifices sometimes offering children to Moloch. It was considered a very evil place. But during our Lord's time, those evil sacrifices had ended there, and it was the city dump. I told you this before. It was like the town landfill, where people took all of their refuge, just dumped it there, and the fire was kept burning continually. There was constant smoke rising, black, acrid smoke, ascending from Gehenna, this town dump of Jerusalem. Our Lord actually used that as a very familiar image of what hell is like, where the waste of creation, the refuse, as it were, of creation, is to be left dumped, cast. We talk about being cast into hell. It's just dumped into hell. We're cast into hell. And so it is that uh, 
the residents of Jerusalem would discard whatever was disgusting and vile and useless to them. And there would be slowly concerned by a, a fire which burned day and night. They knew very well the sight, they knew the, the smell, they knew the sound of things burning. They understood what our Lord was meaning here. It came to be associated with a place of perpetual fire and pain, Gehenna. Now, we also read about this fire and this uh, punishment in St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, where we read about the, the last judgment and the separation of the sheep and the goats. And this is what St. Matthew says. And when the Son of Man shall come in his majesty, and all the angels with him, then shall he sit upon the seat of his majesty, and all nations shall be gathered together before him. All nations, all nations gathered before him. Not just of those nations that exist at the moment, but all nations shall be gathered together. And he shall separate them one from another. This is important, by the way, the statement important for the Jews, because the Jews considered themselves as the chosen people to have special rights. And as though they, the children of Abraham, had a special place in judgment, and all of the members of the other nations were going to be condemned. But our Lord was actually telling them a lot more than the fact of the existence of hell. He was talking about how the judgment was going to be. And not only the judgment of the Jews, but the judgment of all the nations of the world, all of the Gentiles. All nations shall be gathered together before him, and he shall separate them one from another, as the shepherd separated the sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then shall the king say to them that shall be on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, possess you the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you covered me. Sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then shall the just answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see thee hungry, and fed thee thirsty, and gave thee drink? And when did we see thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and covered thee? Or when did we see thee sick, or in prison, and came to thee? And the king answering shall say to them, Amen, I say to you, as long as you did it to one of these least brethren, of these my least brethren, you did it to me. Then he shall say to them also, that shall be on his left hand, Depart from me, you accursed ones, into everlasting fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. Here you are, like the fires of hell prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me not to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me not to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, and you covered me not. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Now, here, of course, you recognize this, the corporal works of mercy, exactly what the church taught you as a child, with regard to the corporal works of mercy that we must perform here. They're spelled out here. Then they also shall answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see thee hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to thee? Then he shall answer them, saying, Amen, I say to you, as long as you did it not to one of these least, neither did you do it to me. And these shall go into everlasting punishment, but the just into everlasting life. And there you have a clear statement which sums up the judgment that the condemned, with the words, Depart from me, you accursed ones, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and the angels have a clear statement about their condemnation and a clear statement of the just being welcomed into everlasting life. And you hear why our Lord says they will be condemned and others will be saved. It's important for us to be able to keep this in mind when someone is trying to argue with us that we're saved by faith alone. And our Lord makes a very clear statement about that. He doesn't mention, he doesn't mention that fact here. He mentioned the works of charity, charity inspired by faith. That's a lot more than just believing. 
the fact of our Lord's redemption, redeeming us on the cross. It has to be operative. It has to be put into effect. Religion is the practice of a faith. We have to practice that faith, not just believe it. But you know that. By the way, you'll notice that there are six corporal works of mercy mentioned here. The seventh corporal work of mercy, just as an aside, is to bury the dead. Our Lord did not say that here. I was dead and you buried me. He didn't say that. That death of his was to come later. Okay. So that was added, as I say, later as the seventh corporal works of mercy, but it's not listed here. But it is one of them. There's no doubt about it. Now, time and time again in the Gospels, our Lord talks about exterior darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. It has become kind of a, a byword in the English language, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. It comes to us from the repeated statements, mostly in St. Matthew's Gospel again. In St. Matthew chapter 8, we read, But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into the exterior darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, punishment, punishment from God. That is, the children of the kingdom who are cast out because they did not appreciate the blessing they had. And again, St. Matthew chapter 13. And cast shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A weeping... The weeping indicates a grief of soul, okay, the spiritual torment. The gnashing of teeth indicates the physical torment, the, the pain of hell. Both of those are represented here in this one statement, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And later on in uh, chapter 13, St. Matthew says, And he shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be, again, weeping and gnashing of teeth. He repeats the idea. And in, verse 20, in chapter 22, verse 13, Then the king said to the waiters, Bind his hands and feet, and cast him into the exterior darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you notice that this refers to the guest at the wedding celebration who did not have on the wedding garment. He was present. He was in the celebration. He was in the church. He was invited by force, as it were, and the king would provide for him a wedding garment, but he refused it. So even the king asked him, well, how did you get in here without it? The man had nothing to say. And so that was his judgment. And that wedding garment symbolizes divine grace. It symbolizes sanctifying grace. And so uh, we see the statement, the judgment of this man was a member of the church, in the church, but he's being cast out because he was found to be unworthy. And uh, again, St. Matthew chapter 24, and shall separate him and appoint his portion with the hypocrites. With the hypocrites, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we find, again, not only the statement of the punishment of body and soul, we find also the reason why, the reason why, the lack of divine grace in the soul, that wedding garment symbolizes that. We find here in this statement, hypocrisy. The hypocrites, hypocrisy will be punished this way. And again, in Matthew chapter 25, back to where we were, and the unprofitable, unprofitable servant cast ye out into the exterior darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So another reason for the casting out of a soul because he's a servant who does not bear fruit. So it's not a matter just that he does something evil, it's that he doesn't do the good that he's supposed to do. He doesn't fulfill his purpose, his mission. He's the unprofitable servant. And soon we're going to see the unforgiving servant, servant cast out. Again, that character of being unforgiving is grounds for being cast into hell. So, when the gospel tells us about these things, it tells us not only there is divine punishment, it also tells us why. Why is this one, why is that one condemned to hell? 
We already saw that litany of the corporal works of mercy, and those who refused to perform that, who could have, who could have performed that service to another soul, refused to do it. And that is grounds for condemnation. But we see other grounds too. And in St. Luke, St. Luke also refers to this. He says, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. Now he's talking to the Jews here. St. Luke chapter 13, verse 28, that they shall be weeping and gnashing their teeth when they see their fathers Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and they will be excluded from it. So the threat, you might say, is very real and it is meant to be taken seriously as our Lord means it very seriously. What about scandal? Mention hypocrisy, mention being an unprofitable servant and that soon we'll look at the unforgiving servant. What about, what about scandal? Is that reason? When we read the passion from our Lord about cutting off your hand if it leads you into sin, you're better off without it, a judgment, because you can't be saved with it, but you can be saved without it. What about scandalizing others, though? Well, we have our Lord's statement of the scandalizing of the little children. That's very striking, very striking. Here's what our Lord says about that. He says, he that shall scandalize one of these little ones that believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone should be hanged about his neck and that he should be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of scandals. For it must needs be that scandals come, but nevertheless, woe to that man by whom the scandal comes. And if thy hand or thy foot scandalize thee, now, now here he says this, here he repeats these words here, then cut it off and cast it from thee. It's better for thee to go into life maimed or lame than having two hands or two feet cast into everlasting fire. If thy eyes scandalize thee, that is, if it is an occasion of sin for you, pluck it out, cast it from thee. It is better for thee having one eye to enter into life than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. See that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So there's a contrast between being cast out and the weeping and the gnashing of teeth and the innocent ones, the children, whose angels, their, their guardian angels actually see God in heaven in the beatific vision, even while those angels are here attending their little charges here on earth. And so God finds the sin of scandal, especially the innocent, to be particularly abhorrent. And he, he threatens, he says, this is what will happen to you. This is what will happen to you if you do this. He said, rather than live to commit these sins, it would be better for you to do that. Be drowned in the depths of the sea. Rather than live with two hands and commit these sins, it would be better for you to cut off a hand and throw it away. Throw it away. Cast it away. Get it away from you. <laughs> and the same with your eye. He doesn't say just plug it. He says, throw it away. Get rid of it. Get it as far away from it as you can. It's a threat to you. Now, there are those who took our Lord's words very literally in history and actually did these, these gruesome deeds of taking out their hands and their eyes and so on. And the church condemned them. And they might say, well, that's what Scripture says. You see, there's a danger in interpreting Scripture for yourself without the tradition of the church to guide you. Because this, this, the fifth commandment forbids. The fifth commandment forbids that maiming oneself. Our Lord is not recommending that you do these, these terrible deeds to yourself. What he's saying is you wouldn't think, even think of doing this. You wouldn't think of doing these things. A normal, sane person wouldn't think of doing these things. His message is a normal, sane person. Realizing there is a, a hell of everlasting punishment for this should not even consider the possibility of the event eventually committing sin. They shouldn't even consider the possibility of it. 
That's what he's saying. He's saying you wouldn't do these terrible things. Well, don't commit sin. Don't let these things scandalize you. That's what he's saying. And I mentioned the unforgiving servant. A servant, and this is an important point too, because as far as reasons for being condemned to hell, well, this figures prominently. Remember, you pray every day in the Our Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And uh, so our Lord made a number of statements in the Gospels about the importance of being willing to forgive if you want to be forgiven. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a king who would take an account of his servants. And when he had begun to take the account, one was brought to him that owed him 10,000 talents. And as he had not wherewith to pay it, his Lord commanded that he should be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, in those days, people would not have been scandalized by that. They would have seen a, pay, a king would do that. If, if it, there was a debt and it could not be paid, <coughs> people could be sold into slavery to pay that debt. But that servant falling down besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And the Lord of that servant, being moved with pity, let him go and forgave him the debt. But when that servant was gone out, he found one of his fellow servants that owed him a hundred pence, and laying hold of him, throttled him, saying, Pay what thou owest. And his fellow servant, falling down, besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he paid the debt. It's curious, you know, that this uh, first servant received the forgiveness of the entire debt, a massive debt. But he didn't ask for it. He did not ask to be forgiven the debt. He just said, have patience, I will pay you. Why would he not have asked for that? Perhaps because he, the kind of man he was, he couldn't conceive of forgiving a debt, as he proved later, when he met another servant who owed him a hundred pence, a mere pittance in comparison. And that servant said the same thing, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. You see, his unwillingness to forgive a debt perhaps is exactly what forbade him to ask that it be forgiven him. In any case, we see the outcome here. Now his fellow servants, seeing what was done, very much, were very much grieved, and they came and told their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord called him and said to him, Thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all the debt, because thou besoughtest me. Shouldst not thou then have had compassion also on thy fellow servant, even as I had compassion on thee? And his Lord, being angry, delivered him to the torturers until he paid all the debt. Ten thousand talents. How many lifetimes? So also shall my heavenly Father do to you, if you forgive not everyone his brother from your hearts. Sincerely. We see this message in the Sermon on the Mount. We see it here in this parable. We see it in the Our Father. Yes, this is grounds for being cast into hell. The unwillingness to forgive. We already saw the example of the guest without the wedding garment. But before the king came into the feast and found the guest without the wedding garment, he'd already invited others to come to the feast, and they wouldn't come. They rather abused the servants he sent to invite them. And finally, some of those would-be guests killed the messengers. And the gospel tells us that the king was angry and sent his armies to destroy them in their cities, burn their cities. Again, we see the wrath of God at work here and those who reject. Those who reject. So there are a number of grounds on which a soul could be condemned to hell. Not the least of which is, again, from the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 of St. Matthew. When our Lord tells us in one verse, that is verse 19, that's St. Matthew, chapter 5, verse 19. 
One verse early on in the Sermon on the Mount. Our Lord makes a statement. He therefore that shall break one of these least commandments and so shall teach men shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But he that shall do and teach, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now that one statement is extremely interesting. There's a lot of information there. First of all, our Lord is telling us here in in his own sermon, the greatest sermon ever given, the Sermon on the Mount, that there are greater commandments and lesser commandments. And that breaking the lesser commandments will not exclude you from heaven. You'll be in heaven, but will be the least in heaven. Those, those who keep even the least of God's commandments will be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. Not just the great commandments, but even the least commandments. They're so particular and so faithful in everything. They will be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. And what is implied here, unmistakably, is those who violate the great commandments are not even in the kingdom of heaven. They're excluded from the kingdom of heaven. And so our Lord says to them, For I tell you that unless your justice abound more than that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So what is hell like? What is it like to be excluded from the kingdom of heaven? That's a, you excuse the uh, expression, that is a burning question, isn't it? What is it like to be excluded from the kingdom of heaven? (laughs) Serious question, because we are actually answering answering now, day by day, in our lives, we're answering the great question of whether we will embrace the love of God or reject it, and whether we will be or will not be excluded from the kingdom of heaven. As long as we live, that will be the question of that choice. So what does it mean? What is hell like? Well, for one thing, we have the words of Our Lady of Fatima. As recently as July 13, 1917, our blessed brother gave a vision of hell to people here on earth, and they were little children. Little children, actually, were given the grace, and it was a grace to gaze into the pit of hell. For a moment, just for a moment. And Lucia describes this event. She describes what happened. She describes what they saw. She says, Our Lady opened her hands once more, as she had done the two previous months. That's June and May. The rays of light appeared to penetrate the earth, and we saw, as it were, a vast sea of fire Plunged in this fire, we saw the demons and the souls of the condemned. The latter were like transparent burning embers, all blackened or burnished bronze, having human forms. They were floating about in that conflagration, now raised into the air by the flames which issued from within themselves. Together with the great clouds of smoke, Now they fell back on every side like sparks in huge fires without weight or equilibrium amid shrieks and groans of pain and despair, which horrified us and made us tremble with fear. It must have been this sight which caused me to cry out as people say they heard me. The demons were distinguished from the souls of the damned by their terrifying and repellent likeness to frightful and unknown animals. Black and transparent like burning coals, that vision only lasted for a moment, thanks to our good Heavenly Mother, who at the first apparition had promised to take us to heaven. Without that, I think that we would have died of terror and fear. So that is a description that Lucia gave of what she and her little friends saw what Our Lady showed them of the fires of hell. 
It is interesting to read what she, well, it's all interesting what, to read what she says here, but of course everything seems very familiar to us in our common descriptions of hell as being filled with fire, like a pit of fire. But it's interesting that she says that the souls of the condemned were floating in the conflagration in flames, but the flames issued from them, from within them. Curious. St. Thomas Aquinas explains how a spiritual soul can feel physical fire. Because he says that our souls are made by God to be united with bodies, with something physical, by nature. Our souls are designed for that. And so in hell, he says, our souls will actually be united with the fire as though the fire was our body, as though our body was now flame. <coughs> that is the most intimate union we can imagine, the soul and a body being united, but the body in this case being fire itself. The total lack of control, the being billowed about in the flame, the flame issuing from themselves, oddly enough, is a frightful thought, being so completely helpless, so completely and utterly helpless. <clears throat> it's a frightening thought. It certainly frightened them. Did the children take this seriously? You know they did. They took it upon themselves to offer sacrifices upon sacrifices for the souls of those here on earth who were destined to die in sin. They took upon themselves heroic sacrifices, even these little children, going without drink in the hot sun. You know thirst is very difficult for us. Giving up this, giving up that, they sacrificed so much that Our Lady even warned them not to go be excessive but to be prudent in the sacrifices they offered. She didn't stop them from offering sacrifices, but she warned them. She even forbade them to perform certain, certain penances because it would damage their health. But they were so, so concerned about souls being lost and going to that horrible place, they never forgot the need to offer sacrifice. And later on, when Jacinta and Francesco became gravely ill, you never heard a groan of complaint from them because they had seen something. They had heard the shrieks and the groans of the souls in hell. And you would never hear a groan from them in their sufferings on earth because they were offering them for souls on earth that were in danger of being lost forever. They thought that nothing was too much, too, too high a price to pay to save a soul from that fate. Rather, frightening prospect, rather sobering prospect for you and I, for you and me, I should say, who are, who are still here living this mortal life and making this decision about where we're going to be when this life is over. The Council of Trent, the Council of Trent gives us a statement on hell, which is very perfunctory as it were, but very, very powerful. It says, hell is a most loathsome and dark prison in which the souls of the damned are tormented with the unclean spirits in eternal and inextinguishable fire. This place is called Gehenna, the bottomless pit, and is hell strictly so called. We have the testimony of Poets such as Dante, which I won't go into detail here now, because uh, Dante did write the Inferno, as you know, the first part of his great, you might call, epic poem of a visit to hell, to purgatory, to heaven. And uh, Dante describes hell as uh, having nine levels. And the nine levels, he says, correspond to the sins of mankind and uh, very reasons why he says they would be condemned. That's, uh, again, it's, it's actually helpful for us perhaps to 
realize what this concept was um, in the Inferno because it, it kind of t tells us what the Christian people, Catholic people, believed of hell. He talks about the nine levels of hell corresponding to the evils committed by men. And the, the first circle of hell he calls limbo. And limbo is a rather dour place. It's kind of like living in a, an area that is continually overcast. Because there is still some sense of loss, but there's no sense of pain. Uh, they do not suffer the punishment of physical pain, but there is always a sense of loss. But nonetheless, he says that those with natural virtue are there. He says that the unbaptized babies will go there, but he says pagans who lived a just life. And by that he means the prominent people of classical antiquity who were considered to be noble souls. Homer, Socrates, Aristotle, Cicero, Hippocrates, even Julius Caesar he has there. Because they, he in his mind, lived a life of natural virtue. Not supernatural virtue, not virtue, lives of faith and hope and charity, so they could not be saved in heaven. But nonetheless, they will not be tormented in hell because of uh, the natural virtue that they practiced, following the conscience that God gave them. The second circle of hell might surprise you to realize he places those who are guilty of grave sins of lust. Those who are guilty of grave sins of lust are the second circle of hell, he says. And in the second circle of hell, they are immersed. They are immersed in this foul, foul, uh, as it were, bath. And uh, actually, I beg your pardon. I beg your pardon. That it actually remains for others. For others. The second circle of hell. He talks about those who died in uh, with lustful mortal sins. They're, they're blown about. They're blown about, like the image that was given by Our Lady at Fatima for the children, what they saw, the souls just tumbling about, uh, buffeted by a kind of hellish wind. And uh, Dante talks about that for those who die in the state of lustful sins, as though they are constantly being buffeted about by winds, and they can never find peace and never find rest. The strong wind symbolizing the restlessness of a person who is led by the desire for fleshly pleasures. And Dante sees those who on earth uh, typify this, and he gives, in fact, he gives the example of Cleopatra and Helen of Troy there because of the adulteries committed by them. Now, the third circle of hell, in Dante's view, is people by those who are guilty of gluttony. And uh, he sees them as being immersed in kind of a, a vile slush, as it were, a vile and putrid slush. And subject, when they emerge, whatever comes of, above the surface of that, is being pelted with an, again, an equally vile rain. And it symbolizes a personal degradation of one who overindulges in food and drink, otherworldly pleasures. In the fourth circle of hell, Dante sees the souls of people who are punished for greed. The fourth circle of hell, those who are guilty of greed. Curiously, he has here cardinals and popes, clergymen, clergymen who desired the riches of the world. Those who hoarded possessions, who lavishly wasted spendthrifts, those who were misers, who would not surrender them even to those in need. The fifth circle of hell is characterized, as Dante says, by the sins of anger. Those who are wrathful and sullen, resentful, are punished there. 
It is a brawl, continual fighting. As though uh, they are crossing the river Styx, as it were, and in the process of this endless struggle and strife. It is a, uh, again, a, uh, a grim prospect. He mentions names, you would not recognize them. The sixth circle of hell, heresy. Those who knowingly taught contrary to the teachings of the Church of Christ, those who spread heresy. He even mentions a pope as listed in that group. The seventh circle of hell, those who are guilty of violence. The seventh circle of hell is actually divided into three different rings. The outer ring is for murderers. Dante has here Alexander the Great. And in the middle ring, the poet sees those who are guilty of suicide. And in the inner ring of the seventh circle, he sees the blasphemers and sodomites, the sodomites, he says, residing in a desert of burning sand and burning rain falling from the sky. And the eighth circle of hell is inhabited by those guilty of fraud, he says. Now, this is his own concept of how evil these sins are here. He divides them up this way. He sees these people as deceivers, and you might say here, as the hypocrites. You might see here hypocrites. They are deceivers, and they're deceivers in the worst way. You find our Lord saying to the Pharisees, calling them hypocrites, and you see here, this is where Dante puts them. And the ninth circle of hell is reserved for treachery, those who are traitors. Of course, the chief traitor, the traitor in chief, as it were, is Judas. So, it's curious if you get a chance to read that, as you no doubt you probably did in high school, I imagine, read some of that. But if you go back and refresh your memory, you'll see how the popular imagination of the 1300s saw hell and how it was represented here. Dante here was not only uh, expressing his own thoughts on the subject, but as this great poet laureate of Italy, his thinking has actually influenced the imaginations of generations after him, even to our own country and our own schools who in former days were taught about these things. So um, we go to St. Teresa of Avila in the 1500s. St. Teresa of Avila had a vision of hell. It doesn't give a great description as St. John Bosco does after her, but she gives a description powerful enough to make us think seriously. Because she saw this, she says. She was actually shown her own place in hell. While she was known to have experienced some great ecstatic and delightful things about God, about the soul, she also received visions of judgment and punishment as well. And St. Teresa writes in her autobiography about a frightening vision she had of hell, how that vision haunted her for the rest of her life, and how grateful she was to God for showing her that, how grateful she was for it. When writing the vision down, even in doing that, she experienced the same bone-chilling feelings throughout her body, it was so riveting to her, even the memory of it. Here's what she said. I found myself, as I thought, plunged right into hell. I realized that it, it was the Lord's will that I should see the place which the devils had prepared for me there and which I had merited for my sins. This happened in the briefest space of time. 
But even if I were to live for many years, I believe it would be impossible for me to forget it. The entrance, I thought, resembled a very long, narrow passage, like a furnace, very low, dark, and closely confined. The ground seemed to be full of water, which looked like filthy, evil-smelling mud, and in it were many wicked-looking reptiles. At the end, there was a hollow place scooped out of a wall, like a cupboard. And it was here that I found myself in close confinement. She'd found her place in hell. But the sight of all this was pleasant by comparison with what I felt there. My feelings, I think, could not possibly be exaggerated, nor can anyone understand them. I felt a fire within my soul, the nature of which I am utterly incapable of describing. I had been put in this place, which looked like a hole in the wall, and those very walls, so terrible to the sight, bore down upon me and completely stifled me. There was no light, and everything was in the blackest darkness. Even though this was a terrible experience for her, one that would ordinarily cause just panic, if one were even capable of panic at that point, as terrifying as it was, she understood why God showed her that. You see, as a teenager, she had high, high ambitions for sanctity, but she was also very much shall we say, in tune with the world around her. And there was one summer in her life when she actually took up reading novels. Yeah, the, the printing press had been invented the previous century, and already rather salacious novels were being printed. And uh, she, in a rather comfortable state of life, had access to them. She began to read them and enjoy them. She found out later that God saved her from that. That was like a pit opening before her very feet. God rescued her from that. And she said, if I had followed that path and God had not brought me back from that, it was like on the edge, being on the edge of an abyss. And she said she was very grateful, so grateful to God for rescuing her. He was actually showing her where that would have led her. She continued, this vision was one of the most signal favors which the Lord has bestowed upon me. It has been of the greatest benefit to me, both in taking from me all fear of the tribulations and disappointments of this life, and also in strengthening me to suffer them, and to give thanks to the Lord, who, as I now believe, has delivered me from such terrible and never-ending torments. In other words, like the children of Fatima, but long before them, she says that seeing these things actually strengthened her strengthened her not only by making her grateful for what she avoided, but making her willing to endure the sufferings of this life. In other words, she says it put everything into perspective for her. She now was not crushed by hardships or misfortunes or privations in life. She considered them mere trifles compared to what she had seen. Would have been her lot. It was very real to her, even though she would never be in that hole in the wall, crushed by the wall itself, and confined there, as it were, forever, with that inner fire blazing away. She would never be there, and she knew that. At least she had reasonable hope that she would never be there still. It made everything she had to endure in this life seem so trivial. In fact, she, like the children of Fatima so much later than she, would offer whatever she could for the souls who were going to go to hell were it not for the fact that someone would pray for them. As Our Lady told the children of Fatima, there are many souls who go to hell because they have no one, no one to pray for them. And so the reaction of Teresa of Avila, of Jacinta, of Francesco, of Lucia, was to see that they prayed. 
for souls, so that there would be far fewer who would lose their souls because there would be no one to pray for them. So, Teresa of Avila understood that if she hadn't turned away from vice and embraced a life of virtue, she would have gone to hell, and that would have been where she was. She actually saw her place the devils had prepared for her. She was grateful to God. This vision moved her to great sadness for those who would go there and who were drawing near to hell through their deliberate decisions. She says, it also inspired me with fervent impulses for the good of souls, for I readily believe that to deliver a single one of them from such dreadful tortures, I would willingly die many deaths. After all, if we see anyone on earth who is especially dear to us, suffering great trial or pain, our very nature seems to move us to compassion. And if his sufferings are severe, they oppress us too. So she was moved to compassion for souls that were very much in danger of being lost. So instead of experiencing a kind of self-righteous satisfaction that these lustful people, these greedy people, these violent and vicious people were going to go to hell, she was moved to the exact opposite idea. We've got to stop them. We've got to save them. Right? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. God forbid that they would only find out what they do when they're in hell. So she dedicated her life to rescuing souls from hell. That actually brings us to the prophetic dream of St. John Bosco in the year 1868. But this is very long, and we can't undertake it now. Uh, I recommend it to you, though. <clears throat> 